Hey, my name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace Church. Thanks for being a part of our services this weekend. I want to start this new series with a question that might be a little bit awkward. Here's a question. Are you ready? How much are you worth? Think, think of the number. Like, how much are you worth? Uh, and then share that with a person saying, I'm just kidding, don't share that with anybody else. It, that's, a, that's a very uncomfortable question to be asked, isn't it? Uh, let me ask it a little bit different way. How much is your life worth? Now, I don't know why, but somehow we think of those two questions in two different categories. When I, when I hear somebody ask me, how much are you worth? I begin tallying up my assets versus liabilities, and maybe you did the same thing. But then when somebody asks me how much is my life worth, that feels more abstract to me. Like, does it to you? And, and that's actually more of the heart behind the series that we're talking about, uh, that, that we're going through right now. In 2005, the London Zoo had an exhibit that they titled, Warning, Humans and Their Natural Exhibit. And they placed it in the primate section of the zoo in between other exhibits. And when people walked by there, you could see eight humans in this exhibit interacting with each other in their natural state. They were watching TV, playing video games, board games, sleeping on a hammock, and some of them were just waving at the people as they walked by. Uh, but the goal of the exhibit, according to their spokesperson, was to downplay the uniqueness of humans as a species as a species. The lady's name was Polly, and here's the quote. She said, seeing people in a different environment among other animals teaches the public that humans are just another primate, unlike any other animal. Uh, one of the participants agreed in an interview and said that a lot of people think that humans are above other animals, but when they see humans as animals here, it kind of reminds us that we're not all that special. Well, are they right? Like, does a human being have intrinsically uh, greater worth than an animal's life? Like, is a is a person more valuable than a dog? Like, I, I've got I've got friends, like genuine friends of mine, who really do believe. And I'm saying this a little. I, I can't not smile. I'm sorry. And if and if you believe this, I'm already offending you, and I'm and I apologize for that. But they really do believe that a human's life is of equal value to a dog's life, or said the other way, that a dog's life is equally valuable to a human's life. And I guess my next question would be, is that is that true for all animals? Because that can't be true for cats, right? Like it can't be true for cats. And I, I say that just in jest, uh, but dogs are definitely better than cats. I just need to, that's that's in the Bible somewhere. I'm, I'm sure of it, but, but how many of the animals' lives are just as valuable as, as a human's life? Is, um, what about a, like a, like a mouse? Is a mouse equally valuable as, as a human? What, what about a roach or a spider or a snake or a mosquito? I, I think mosquito is probably the one like thing from the animal world, right? The creature world that we can all agree, uh, that deserves to die, right? Stinking. Man, them stinking mosquitoes. But where does this value come from? And on what do we base our assessment on the value of, of a life? Coming out of this pandemic for the very first time this weekend, uh, our occupancy rate in person in all three of our locations has been bumped up 
to 50%. On a side note, I'm thankful by God's grace that in 26 weeks, we've had zero transmissions of the COVID uh, virus uh, in one of our services. But I think my concern is more along the, the, the lines in which we have been conditioned uh, to see people uh, as a result of this traumatic experience that we've all been in. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, going out in public, and I'm sure by now you've gone out in public if nowhere else to a grocery store. Some of us are going to restaurants and that type of thing. And, and maybe you've even gone shopping or, you know, whatever. Um, but because of everything we've just gone through, we're starting to see each other as, as threats. We avoid interacting with other people as much as possible. And I've even caught myself avoiding eye contact with somebody because I didn't want to be uh, stopped by them. At the beginning of this year, in January, CBS did a poll in conjunction with an organization called YouGov. And they asked the question, uh, what represents the great, greatest threat to your way of life? And the fourth highest threat uh, by, by in this poll to your way of life, according to 8% of people, was a military threat like, like wars or terrorism. The third greatest threat to our way of life and receiving 17% was a natural disaster. Things like uh, global warming or even the virus was in that category. And that was seen as the third greatest threat to, to our way of life. The, the second greatest threat uh, to our way of life was some type of economic disruption like uh, the stock market crashing or an anticipated um, escalation of, of um, uh, in, inflation or a housing market crash. Like that that was deemed to be the second greatest threat to our way of life. And, and that received 20%. But the number one greatest threat to our way of life based on a poll that was taken just two months ago is other people. 55% of Americans said that the number one greatest threat to my way of life is you like my neighbor, other people that I'm around. And I believe that over the past year, we have been lulled into an unhealthy isolation that I think threatens the mission of Jesus uh, in this world. And I want to wake us up. That's the purpose of this series. Uh, this series is going to reframe the way that we see other people, how we interact with other people, and the way that we need to re rearrange our lives around other people. I really do believe that your greatest contribution to the world may not come through a relationship that you already have right now. And I'll, I'll demonstrate this a, a little bit by asking you to think of the person who's had the greatest impact in your life, non-family, like the, the your favorite non-family person in your entire life. Who's that person? And I want you to get that person's uh, a face in your mind. I want you to think of the person who's made the biggest difference in your life who wasn't related to you, who didn't have to be in a relationship with you. And, and that's the point, is that to them, uh, you were a person that they didn't need to know. You were a random person in their life until they made a conscious choice on some specific day to choose to make you more than just a random person in their life. And their conscious choice to see you different then the way their circumstances may have conditioned them to see you has had a permanent beneficial impact 
on your life. And here's the big point behind the teaching today, and that's this, that you may miss the purpose for which you were created if you miss the value that is packed into every single interaction that you're going to have for the rest of today. My hope is that your prayer begins to become this, that you begin praying, God, help me to see every interaction I have today as more than just an exchange of information or personal contact. Why? I'm gonna give you the whole sermon right here. There's three reasons why. Number one is this, every person is created in the image of God. Number two, every person is as valuable as any person. And number three, every person needs to know, needs to feel like they have value. So it's that first one I wanna start with right now, and that's this, every person is created in the image of God. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, man, we've, it feels like this last year, we've started a lot in the book of Genesis, Genesis, which I think is important because it sets the stage for the rest of like humanity. So it's important that we do this. But in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, the scripture says this, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And what I want you to know from this is that if you read the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, there's only one thing created in the image of God. And the only thing created in the image of God is humans. That's it. When God created everything, there was only one thing that God said, I'm going to put my stamp on this. And God could have done that with everything. He could have done it with dolphins. He could have done it with birds. He could have done it with dogs, puppies, and kittens. Kittens are cute. Cats, I don't know where they lose it along the way, but at some point they, they kind of lose that cute. Okay, I'm sorry, I should keep busting on cats. But the point I'm trying to make is that there's only one thing in all of creation that God said, I'm making this to represent me. Now you've got things in your house and that, that you've assigned different value, value to. And there's something that you have, maybe it's a piece of artwork that you have hung on your refrigerator door that one of your kids made for you. And that has more value to you than maybe even a framed picture in the living room because it was made by your child or maybe a nephew or a niece, a, a grandkid, or, or maybe a kid that you babysit or nanny for, maybe you're an au pair. Like, like, like we assign value to different things based on uh, who, who made it and who it represents and who it comes from, right? So in all of the creation, there's one thing that God said, I'm making mine. Like it represents me more in this world than anything else. And it was, it was humankind. It's, it's us. I, I have here, um, uh, two different quarters and, uh, each of these quarters have the exact same image on them, and it is the image of uh, George Washington. So I've got George Washington on this quarter and George Washington on this quarter, and both of these coins are stamped with whose image? George Washington's. So my next question would then be, which quarter's worth more? I mean, the truth is both quarters have the exact same value. They're both worth 25 cents. Now, what I use these quarter for, quarters for may be completely different. This, this quarter might be used to buy a, an, an ice cream cone at McDonald's. I have a particular softness for ice cream uh, at McDonald's. And, and this, this one might be used to add, to, to, to make perfect change, exact change for a, a car battery at AutoZone across the street from my McDonald's. So while both of these quarters might be used for completely different things, 
it doesn't change their value. They are both equally valuable, and, and both of them are stamped with the exact same image. Uh, what they are used for is completely different, but their value is exactly the same. And you as a Christian, I, I as a Christian, must be convinced of that, or else we're gonna miss our God moments. You and I have to be convinced that regardless of what somebody's life is being used for, somebody's life, like your life is going to be used differently than my life. Like you might, uh, you, you serve a different purpose in the world. You've got a different type of a job. You bring different skill sets to the table. But truthfully, both of us are stamped in the same image of our creator. And equally, our lives have value regardless of what our lives are used for. And until I begin to see every single person around me as being equally valuable to our Creator, I'm going to miss the purpose for which God brought that person into my life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, when the Bible uses the word that man was formed from the dust of the ground, that word form means to, to fashion, to 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 form with intention. The idea is that you're thinking of a skilled carpenter or the more biblical metaphor would probably be a potter sitting at a potter's wheel with a lump of clay. Now here's what's crazy. In Genesis chapter one, verse 16, it says that God created the, the, the sun and the moon and then it gets to the end of verse 16 and it goes, and he also made the stars. Like that's how, that's how God describes the creation of the stars. Oh, and, and I also made those. But then when it comes to human beings, God goes into far more depth and says, I, I actually sat down when it came to people and I intentionally formed them out of the dust of the ground and I created them in my image. And even farther, I breathed my life into, into them. Now we as humans, we marvel and are astonished at the stars and we get bored with people. And I'm wondering if we don't have that completely backwards. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote that I, I can't find where it comes from, but it's pretty well known. And that's this, that you will never look into the eyes of someone that God does not love. And that's hard for me to remember, especially when I get aggravated with people or I, I, don't, I don't know these people, but I've, I have never, you have never, and I need to remember this. I need to be convinced of this, that there's not a single person I have ever looked at that God didn't supremely love as much as he loves me. I have a neighbor who said to me about two years ago now, she said, uh, I can't wait till human beings become extinct so that the, the earth can begin to heal. And... My first thought, <laughs> my joke goes, okay, you first. <laughs> no, of course I didn't, I didn't say that to her, but that's, that's one of the most horrifying things I've ever heard a human being say, that they can't wait until all human life is extinguished so that plants can take over this rock. <laughs> Biblically, the world was created for humans. And biblically, humans were created for the glory of God. 
Which brings me to the second point of the today's teaching, and that's this, that every person is as valuable as any person is valuable. And I think that we would probably all initially agree with that statement um, on the surface. But if I'm gonna be completely honest, not every person is as valuable to me, right? Uh, now, I'm not saying that everybody has to have the exact same place, the same priority in my life as anyone else does in my life. But that doesn't change the value of every other person in my life. Like I'm, I am to prioritize my wife and my kids because of the responsibility I have for them. And while my wife and my kids are the most valuable thing to me in my life, I can say because of what scripture says that intrinsically my wife does not have more value than your wife. And my kids don't have more value intrinsically than, than your kids. The truth is that to me, proximity determines value. When I think the more biblical way of saying that is that proximity determines responsibility, but not value. Yes, my wife and kids are more valuable to me because of the relationship that I have with them, but that does not mean that they have more value than any other person in the world. I've got a picture I want you to look at for just a couple of seconds. And it's a picture of a crowded metropolitan area. And I'm gonna ask you this question while you're looking at the picture. What do you see? And you look over on the right and you see that spaghetti mess of wires and the concrete construction. And we start to make assumptions about the economic status of that community. And we see the congestion and the people uh, mixed in with all of the vehicles and the rickshaws. And then we zoom in a little bit tighter and we start noticing uh, the, the clothing and the style of clothing that people are wearing. And, and we make certain assessments and judgments based on that photo. Uh, but the truth is, I don't, I don't know anybody in that photo. So truthfully, I can look at that. And, and I've seen pictures that were far more that's not a devastating picture. It's just a picture of a crowded street in another part of the world that I'm not familiar with. So because I'm not familiar with it and I don't know the people that are in the photo, truthfully, what's happening in that picture and the stories of the people in it don't really mean anything to me. And, and I'm tempted to assign, like truthfully, and I this is horrible, but if that neighborhood com was completely wiped off the map, it would not impact or change my life in any noticeable way. And because it would not change my life, I'm tempted to assign the people that live there less value. And I think that this is something that we naturally do. But the problem is that I'm not looking at this picture the way that God would look at this picture because when God sees this exact same picture, he sees the individuals in this picture. He sees, he sees the guy in the bottom left corner who's wearing a blue shirt and blue pants who's standing up so that he can get more power into his pedal motion because he's got a heavy set man and his wife sitting in the back. And he knows whether or not the guy in the blue outfit is married and he knows 
He knows how old he was when he got married, or he knows how old he was when his mom died, or his dad died, or if his parents are even still alive. He knows whether or not he's got brothers and sisters. He knows his hopes and dreams. He knows he knows the brokenness that's in the heart. He knows the loneliness that that guy might experience when he goes home every night, uh, or, 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 or maybe the joy that the man has every time he goes home. He knows the story of how the couple in the back of that rickshaw got together. My point is when God sees that photo, he sees individual people with stories that are as real and meaningful as the stories that I would tell, the stories that you would tell. He sees sons and daughters in that picture that are as valuable as the sons and daughters that live at my address on my street. I mean, this isn't a unique problem to this day and age. I think we've all been tempted to overlook people that brought less value to us or to assign less value to those who weren't able to bring assets into our life or didn't help us go farther or faster in the direction we were trying to go. You see this actually in the life of somebody who became very famous uh, in human history and in the biblical narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, where it says in verse five, yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, so purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived at the sacrifice, Samuel took one look at Eliab, that was Jesse's oldest son, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Now, the context for this passage of scripture is that uh, Saul had had uh, abandoned uh, the directions of God and had become disobedient, had proven that he was incapable of, of being the kind of leader that God wanted for the nation of Israel. Saul was the very first king and God had rejected Saul and told Samuel, I want you to go anoint the next king. And he said, well, who is it? And he said, uh, I want you to go to Bethlehem and I want you to find Jesse. It's one of Jesse's sons. So Jesse gets invited to this, this religious ritual and then pulled aside with all of the sons and Jesse had been instructed to bring all of your sons. Eliab's the oldest. Samuel comes to Eliab, the oldest, and he thought, surely this is the next king of Israel. This is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I rejected him. And then here's the key thought in this passage of scripture. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see things. To put it just slightly different way, that God doesn't see people the way that you and I see people. People judge by outward appearance, uh, outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. That was the second born son. But Samuel said, this is also not the one that Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea. Uh, but Samuel said, neither is this one the Lord that God has chosen. And, and in the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel had said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So I told you to bring your sons. Here's all seven of your sons. But God has not chosen any of these. So the only logical conclusion is that, like, do you have another kid? Then Samuel asks, are these all the sons that you have? And then Jesse's reply is, well, there's still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. We'll send for him at once, Samuel said. We will, we will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Jesse didn't see his eighth son as valuable. Like, what can the eighth son do for the posterity of our family name? What is the eighth son expected to do in carrying the weight of, of, our, of our heritage and and, and legacy, like the eighth has nothing to contribute. And, and when Jesse was, was asked to bring all of his sons, 
the eighth wasn't even considered in my lineup of my, my sons. So his, the value that he assigned to his son was determined by what he believed his son could do for him. And I think if I'm going to be completely honest, the same is often true for me. I'm, I'm looking for firstborn sons. I'm looking for, I want rich, I want pretty, and I want influential friends. I do. I, I remember being in middle school and sitting at lunch all by myself, right? Like I, I, had a, I had a season in my life that was like that. Maybe you did too. And looking at all the cool kids at the cool table, wishing that I could sit at the cool, at the cool table. Like that's what we want. And I, I don't know that any of that part of me has changed outside of the work of God in my heart. But in a quick moment, I make snack judgments on whether or not you bring value to me. This happens even at Grace Church. I'll meet people in the hallway who kind of step in and they want to kind of like take up time. I'm not trying to discourage anybody from talking to me. I'm just saying, but when somebody I don't know walks up and wants to start this conversation with me in my head, I'm rationalizing, isn't this horrible? I'm rationalizing in my head if this person is worth the amount of time that this conversation is going to take. Like that's, that's horrible, right? Like we, we all, we all do this. And there's, there is somebody in our church who is, um, they're, uh, they're special needs. And this person is always just trying to just, just soak up attention. And it, <laughs> at the beginning, because I knew this person couldn't bring me value, they became a, a, a nuisance to me until God's Holy Spirit spoke into my heart and said, who do you think you are? Now, because of God's work in my heart, when I see this person at church, I go over straight to them first off, ask how their week is, and then offer to pray over them, which is what they always ask me to do. They ask me to pray for them. And then we, we pray together. I'm just saying that that isn't our natural tendency, but those of us who are filled with God's Spirit have got to see even worn down quarters as still being worth the same 25 cents. That's what I'm saying. The value we place on people determines the way we treat them. And what you and I need to remember that their value does not come from what they do for me, but from whose image they have stamped on their life. Some of us, if I can add this, are working our butts off to get things that God would call worthless while trading away things that God would call priceless. And it's because we value um, things over people that we begin to assign value to people based on whether or not they can help us get things. So as a parent, we work our tails off to make sure that our kids get on the right team, get the right grades, get into the right colleges so that we can then boast in the salaries that they grow up to earn when they become adults. And I'm wondering what we would do if our kids grew up and never made more than minimum wage, but love God with all of their heart, love their neighbor as their selves, and then their children, our grandchildren, grew up to do the same would we call ourselves successful parents? 
I think the natural reaction to that question as a Christian is to say yes, but let me lean in by asking the question in a different way. Would you still call yourself a success if your children climbed to the top of their vocational ladder and left generational wealth for your grandchildren, but did not love God with all of their heart, their neighbor as themselves, and then your grandchildren grew up without faith in Jesus? See, I think that things become the priority because I know a whole lot of Christian parents who will sacrifice spiritual opportunities for the sake of financial opportunities, educational opportunities, or athletic opportunities in the lives of their children. And that should be a warning or an indicator to us that we inappropriately assign value to things rather than the way, rather than people. And remembering this will help me prioritize the right things. That value doesn't come from what we buy with our quarter, but from the image that is placed on our quarter. Reminding myself of that reminds me uh, to prioritize people over profit, profit, people over paper, people over prosperity. There's nothing wrong with profit. There's nothing wrong with prosperity. Uh, there's nothing wrong with making paper. I think you ought to be as successful in any of those areas as you possibly can, but do what matters more than just becoming successful, and that's making a difference in the lives of people. I don't think that God is impressed by the amount of money that you die with. I don't think God is impressed by your success, and I don't think God's ever been impressed with how many people know your name. You know what I think would impress God? What I really believe would impress God is not whether or not my children grow up and make a whole lot of money and take care of me in my old age, as much as if my kids grew up to see people the way God sees them. That's what I think would impress God. And the third thing I want to leave you with is that every person needs to know that they have value. When I look at that first photo and I begin to think of the individual stories and my responsibility to make sure that every one of those people know that they are valued, I become overwhelmed because I don't even know what city that's in and I see brokenness everywhere in the world and I feel like I can't, I can't fix everybody in the world. So what ends up happening is I begin focusing nowhere in the world because I'm overwhelmed. And I think the most important thing for you to remember on this is that you are to start where you're at because your proximity does determine your responsibility. I can't fix anything about the life of the guy who was wearing that blue shirt, peddling that rickshaw with the overweight couple in the back. But you know what I can do? I can change the way that I interact with the waitress at Beantown Diner. That's what I can do. I can recognize that the mechanic is more than a guy who's charging me what I believe is $125 more for this break job than what I should be charged. That this guy is a genuine person. He's not somebody who's trying to take $125 from me. And even if he was trying to take an extra $125 from me, the way that I interact with him is communicating to him the value I see in him. He's not an obstacle. And, and you know, <laughs> I don't know if you're getting bugged, but I don't know what's going on right now, but everybody's being contacted so much by all these extended warranty people and we've become aggravated with them. 
And we see people as interruptions in our day. And what I'm trying to say is I think the number one thing that I'm trying to get you to see from this teaching is that the people that you're tempted to see as interruptions in your day might actually be from the perspective of God, the point of your day. The annoying mom at PTO, the non-English speaking janitor at work. The truth is my world is filled with eighth sons. They're everywhere. And if I'm going to be completely transparent and honest, I am more like Jesse than I am like Samuel. The last passage of scripture I want you to see is in Luke chapter 19. Jesus goes on his way through Jericho and he's on his way to Easter week. That's where we are in in the timeline of Jesus's life. And he goes through Jericho. By this time, he's super popular and everybody wants to spend time with Jesus. When he walks into Jericho, there's already a crowd waiting because everybody, uh, word had, had spread that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on the road that leads through Jericho. Word spread, everybody comes out to greet Jesus. It's a huge crowd that he's walking through. He gets almost to the other side of center of town and he stops and he looks up in this tree and the one guy in town who's not allowed to go to temple because he's ceremonially clean, he's a tax collector, the one guy who's been picked on his entire life, the one guy who intentionally outbid all of the other Jews for the position of chief tax collector so that he could take more money from his fellow Jews, the most hated man in town, has climbed up in a tree because he's a dwarf to get a, to get a, a look at Jesus. And when Jesus gets to this tree, here's what happens in Luke chapter 19, verse five. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus in the tree and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, Come down because I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. Why? Because Jesus wasn't looking for the Eliabs, for the Shemaiahs. He was looking for the eighth son. Zacchaeus quickly came down and took, went, uh, uh, and took Jesus to his house in great excitement. The people were displeased and they said, he has gone to the guest of a notorious sinner. I think the thing that I need to remind myself is that if I'm going to learn to see people the way Jesus sees people, I'm going to have to be willing to be inconvenienced. And one step farther is that other people might not understand why I'm doing this. Uh, I was in Florida a few weeks ago to see my in-laws. And um, at the exits for I-4, and all of the, all all the way up and down I four. If you've ever been uh, to Orlando or Tampa or Daytona Beach, I four kind of goes from Daytona all the way down to Tampa. Orlando's in the middle. Uh, Disney's doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, they live off one of the exits from I four. And at this red light, there's always um, meth addicts begging begging for money and, and food there. And uh, those are the people that I drive by. And I value less. I work my butt off not to make eye contact with me. And I I don't want any interaction with, with them. And it's because I'm guilty of assigning a lower value to their quarter than my quarter. And that sin in my heart keeps me from the moments that God has created to enrich not just their lives, but mine also. 
is convicting. And I honestly believe that if Jesus was getting off on I-4, where 98 intersects the highway, right there by the stake and shake, I'll bet you Jesus would be more likely not to go to stake and shake with me, but to hang out with that guy. Sorry. I'm kind of tearing up a little bit right now because I'm feeling convicted because I'd, I've been driving by the people at that corner for the last 30 years. They've been there every single time I've ever visited my in-laws. I think maybe once or twice I gave them a sandwich, but it then felt super awesome and felt like that made my 25 cents, my quarter worth more than 25 cents because of it. And I pat myself on the back because I do what just any follower of Jesus should do. I think maybe this week you and I need to ask God to open our eyes to start actually seeing people around us. Maybe you and I could ask God to tap us on the shoulder when we treat an interaction with somebody as a transaction. Instead of a God moment, maybe you and I can ask God to prompt us to additional small displays of love and kindness that communicate the value that every quarter has. And maybe in a whole other line of thought, you might feel that you're worth less than a quarter. But I want you to know that you're wrong, that you have God's image stamped on you as much as any other person bears the image of God. And you are of unestimable worth to God. So much so that even in your brokenness, your self-loathing, and your sin, Jesus offers his life as a payment for your sin so that you can be made right with God. So I don't know on which side of the equation you're at. Maybe you're the quarter who feels you're worth more than the quarter, or you're the quarter that feels you're worth less than 25 cents. But if you're the quarter who feels worth more than 25 cents, I think maybe we ought to take the opportunity to humble ourselves before God and see the value in every quarter around us. And if you're the quarter who feels less than 25 cents, then maybe this is your opportunity to get this quarter off the street and into God's pocket. I was trying to stick with that quarter illustration, but I'm going to give all of us an opportunity to pray. So if you would, bow your head with me. God, I'm, I'm, I am grateful that my life has value separate from my skills, that my life has value independent of the money that I make or the resources that I have or the connections that I can leverage. Uh, God, I'm, I'm thankful that you see me as I really am and love me unconditionally. God, you've never loved me more than you love me now, and you've never loved me less than you love me now. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would convince that truth uh, on the heart of every single person who's listening to the teaching today. God, for those of us who, because of the money that we make, because of the accomplishments in our life, feel that our quarter is worth more than 25 cents, I pray that we would humble ourselves, dear God, in your sight, that we would acknowledge to you the worth of every person around us, and that maybe we would begin to look for ways to add value to our interactions throughout the day, that we would begin to pray and ask you every single morning to help us discover the God moment in that day. And for those who, God, feel less than 25 cents, I pray that they would humble themselves even further by calling on you to forgive them of their sins and committing themselves to follow you, Jesus, with the rest of your life. God, this is our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.